morning once again. I want to uh, extend my appreciation again for each of our presences here today. And since this is only the second uh, week in this, of us meeting this time with the, uh, the changes that have been made, uh, thought it was appropriate to remind us all to be filling out our attendance cards as well as those are going to be passed down or uh, picked up later on. But again, thankful for each and every one of us that we've gathered here to, as is kind of the theme of this month, worship, exalt, and extol the name of our God. We have thus far been engaged in, in the actions of worship. We have sung songs to our God and to his Christ. We have lifted up prayers to God our Father. We have remembered the death of his son, Jesus Christ, and the, with the partaking of the emblems that represent his body and his blood. We have given to the work of this church, and now we are beginning the process of observing part of the word of God. You're probably aware of John 4, 23 and 24. Jesus in that context is in the midst of his culturally unthinkable conversation with a Samaritan woman. She talks about how her, her fathers, the Samaritans, worshipped upon this mountain, which was Mount Gerizim. And Jesus responds by saying that, that the time is coming and now is for us where the true believers of God will worship upon Mount Gerizim, Mount Sinai, Jerusalem, and then the uttermost parts of the world. That the, the true worshipers, the true believers, would worship the Lord wherever they were. But not only would they worship, but, but what else did he say? He said, John 24, 23 and 24, he says, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Friends, I know for a fact that we have thus far worshipped in truth. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We've done that so far. He said in Philippians 4.6, Be anxious for nothing but in everything in prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We've done that too. He said in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the, the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We've done that too. He told the Corinthian brethren to lay aside something for the collection, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 3, and that they need to be doing it with a cheerful attitude in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. We've done that, and I hope we've done it with a cheerful attitude. So, we've already done all these things. And perhaps if, if, if you're visiting, you're wondering why it is that we do what we do. There's plenty of people you can ask here. It may sound kind of similar to the spiel I, I just gave, but uh, the point is that, that the churches of Christ, the church of the living God abides by scripture as being its final authority for our lives, including how God likes to be worshipped. So again, I know for a fact that we have thus far worshipped in truth. But what about the other part that, that Jesus said in John 4, 23 and 24? Worship in spirit and truth. Have we worshipped in spirit? Well, how do I know if I, I've worshipped in spirit or not? Is he talking about the Holy Spirit, or should we be waiting for the Holy Spirit to move us to worship this morning? No, this deals with if you have worshipped with your spirit or, or not. 
It is simply your attitude that you have held while worshiping the Lord this morning. So let me ask you, are you happy to be here? Are you happy to be here? Or did you come out of obligation? Did you feel, did you come because you feel obligated to? Did did, did someone force you to come this morning? Did did you begrudgingly drag yourself out of bed this morning? You did get 30 minutes extra sleep with this new change. It may not seem like it with daylight savings, but you, you, you still did. But, but why are, are you here? How did you come? Did you come out of obligation or out of a genuine love for the Lord and a desire to exalt his name? Turn, if you would, to Psalm 100. This morning, we're going to observe the joy of, of, of worship. That is not what I wanted it to be. I hope we appreciate the guys in the sound room. I make them look, look bad a lot of the times, but that, that's, that's me and not, not them. But uh, we'll just lay that to rest for now. <clears throat> um, remember that we are an exalted people placed in an exalted position, as Paul would say, in the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 1.3. As exalted people, we have come to exalt and extol the name of the one who is exalted above all. The one who, as Isaiah would say, sits above the circle of the earth, Isaiah 40 and verse 22. And our attitude matters when we approach him on this day that he has set aside. Now, as we approach this psalm, you can call this psalm a psalm of thanksgiving or a psalm of praise. Psalms teach us many different things. You have some psalms of judgment, psalms of history, psalms of lament. The ascent psalms that were sung on the way to Jerusalem, uh, penitential psalms. Some psalms are, are totally declared to the praise, the worship of Yahweh and giving thanks to him for his attributes and his works. That's what we have here in Psalm 100. The unidentified psalmist spends what are our five verses and exalts and extols the name of Yahweh, his and and our God. So let's take a look at this psalm, what it can tell us about what we have uh, gathered here to do, what, what it can tell us about our worship. Look at verses one and two. He says, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness, come before his presence with singing. Notice the language, joyful, gladness, singing. Do you think the psalmist took joy in worshiping God? And if you don't, you're probably in the wrong psalm. This man took immense joy in exalting and extolling the name of his God. You might know Romans 15.4, Paul says, for the things that were written beforehand were written for our learning. So we, we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. This old law, this Old Testament that we're reading from has been thoroughly nailed to the cross of Christ, Colossians 2.14. It is not binding on the New Testament Christian, but if there is a principle that applies to the Christian dispensation, those things are here for our learning. Those things are here for, for us to apply. Do you think that the joy of worship was lost when the Old Testament was nailed to the cross? Does God no longer want us to be happy during worship? Does he not want us to enjoy worship? You've heard it here before. You're about to hear it again. Worship is not for us. It's about him. It's for him. We didn't assemble here to exalt ourselves, but to exalt the God who exalted us. But just because that's true, does that mean that we can't enjoy worship? I would go as far to say that if we aren't enjoying worship, if we weren't joyful while worshiping, then I would be hesitant to call that worship at all. Because what did Jesus say? He said you worship in spirit and truth. But it is an unfortunate fact that you come to some of the buildings that our brethren worship in, and if you didn't know any better, you would think that you were walking in on a funeral. 
with the, 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 the atmosphere. The expressions on people's face are emotionless. The songs that are sung sometimes are funeral dirges. And, and you get, sometimes you get to the point where you're thinking, oh man, when is this song finally going to be over? Is that what we want to be thinking? Is that what we, what we want to look like? But we wouldn't want people to think that we're a liberal congregation now, wouldn't we? Oh, heavens no, we wouldn't. We wouldn't want that. Friends, is our purpose here in this life to make sure other people don't think that we're a liberal congregation? The last time that I checked, our purpose here is to glorify the God who created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 43, verse 7, God's people were created for his glory. Ephesians 1, verse 6 and verse 14, we are created so that we could be to the praise of his glory. Don't lose focus of that. The psalmist says, make a joyful shout. Does that mean that we can shout whatever we want during worship as long as we're happy doing it? There is a sense in which we need to be organized. 1 Corinthians 14.33, Paul says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace in all the churches of saints. And that's reflected in verse 40 when he says, Let all things be done decently and in order. But just because organization is needed doesn't mean that we need to suck the joy out of worship. Notice who it is that we make this joyful shout to who we serve, whose presence we come in with singing. My translation says, the Lord. This psalm is an instance where I truly feel that it is necessary to, to use the name behind the title. Because you, you might know that whenever the writers wrote, they didn't say the Lord. They used his name, Yahweh, or your, your translation may say Jehovah. Because that title, the Lord, is unfortunately applied to many names. That title is only truly fitting for God because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But many people, many false gods are are called Lord. But this psalmist is praising the name of Yahweh, of Jehovah. We make a joyful shout to to no one else. We serve no one else. We don't sing uh, songs of praise to anyone else except for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. the, The God whose name is Yahweh. Here in these first two verses do we particularly see the joy of worship. Look at verse 3. He says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Again, this is another case where uh, the name of God would be more than appropriate to use. Men may call their gods Lord or God. Some say that Allah is God. And whenever Allah is actually just the Arabic, Arabic word for God, we recognize that he is the God of, of the Muslims. Perhaps all the gods of the Hindus could be called lords or gods. The days in the psalmist, all sorts of images of gold, silver, wood, and stone were were called gods and worshipped as if they were the Lord. But but who does this psalmist say to know as God? Yahweh. Who who does he say, uh, who does he recognize as being Lord? Jehovah. There is no God like Jehovah. There is no God like Jehovah in the sense that he is the only God that actually exists. Moses said in Deuteronomy 4.39, Therefore know this day and consider in your heart that Yahweh himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Isaiah 45.18, For thus says Yahweh, Who created the heavens? Who is God? Who formed the earth and made it? Who established it? Who did not create it in vain? Who formed it to be inhabited? I am Yahweh and there is no other. Peter would say in Acts 4 and verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, which is the name of Jesus of Nazareth. The psalmist also says that there is no God like Jehovah because he is the God who made us. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. 
But this fact that, that we are not our own makers, but he is, is another reason to serve the Lord with gladness. It is not ourselves that we have come together to, to serve, but him. However, many gather together on the Lord's Day, and some don't even do that, but, but, but they gather together and they look outwardly a lot like we do this morning, but they have come together for selfish motives. And we can be guilty of the same thing. There is the potential to assemble with the motives of simply making yourself feel better. We, we, we can gather together on this day to, quote unquote, feel spiritual, but that is an incorrect use of the Lord's Day. We can treat the Lord's Day as if it is our day. You've heard it before. You've already heard it once today. You're about to hear it again. Worship is not about us. It's about him. So, so whenever we assemble on his day for which we're supposed to be worshiping him and we use it for, for selfish motives, it's kind of like we're acting as if we have created us and, and, and not him. But then notice the last line of verse 3. He says, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. What comes to mind? Is it Psalm 23 where David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in uh, green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And on and on he goes about uh, th- this close relationship that he has with this God. All these ways of saying, I am a sheep and the Lord is my shepherd. What about Ezekiel 34? Maybe not something that popped into many many people's minds, but it would fit as well. You don't have to turn there, but God through Ezekiel in chapter 34 talks about these irresponsible shepherds, these irresponsible leaders of Israel during Babylonian captivity and all the ways that they had let God and his people down. So as opposed to these irresponsible shepherds, God says in Ezekiel 34, 23, I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Well, if you know anything about the book of Ezekiel, you know that at that point, David had been long dead. So so who is he talking about? As is the case for a few times in the Old Testament, David is a representation of the Messiah. A representation that stems from, from God's promise to David that from his seed, from his body... A king of an everlasting king, uh, of an everlasting kingdom would come forth. Whenever you get to John chapter 10, it seems like, that, like Jesus is directly drawing off of Ezekiel 34. So as opposed to those irresponsible and unreliable shepherds, what, what does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. And, I, uh, and the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. John 10 verse 11. So... We are people who recognize that, that Yahweh is God, recognize that he is the, the creator and not ourselves, and that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And what does all that point to? As his creation, as his people, as his sheep, we make a joyful shout to him, we serve him with gladness, and we come before his presence with singing. Look at verse 4. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise, be thankful to him and bless his name. Whose gates does they say to enter? Whose courts with praise? Obviously, look look back at verse 3. would tell you that it is the one who we should know is God. We enter into Yahweh's gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Does it matter where we worship? Does it matter where we worship? Is God okay with us worshiping wherever we want? Well, you think back to John 4, 23 and 24. Jesus said it didn't matter where you worship, Mount Gerizim, Mount Sinai, Jerusalem, wherever. But, but remember who he said would worship. He said that the true believers would, would worship the, the Lord in spirit and truth. 
So the location of our, our, our worship doesn't matter, the, the physical geography of it doesn't matter, but, but who we're, we're gathered with does matter. We have to assemble with the true believers. Location did matter in the Old Testament. The true place of worship was Jerusalem at the temple where the glory of the Lord resided. But do you remember Jeroboam and, and what he did? By my count, 20 times through the books of First and Second Kings is Jeroboam described as the one who made Israel to sin. What did he do? Well, for his own political progress, he moved the place of worship not only to Jerusalem, but also Dan and Bethel. And the people went along with it. Why? Because probably out of, out of convenience. This way, they didn't have to make the long pilgrimage, the long journey to Jerusalem. They could just take a stroll down to Dan and Bethel and worship the all-too-familiar golden calves that he set up there. Sometimes we can get distracted with convenience as well. Perhaps there's somewhere closer to home, not as long as a commute than it is to get here. Well, friends, we shouldn't be as concerned with our own personal convenience as we are concerned with if we are gathering with the true believers or not. You can have some of the, the nicest people in the world who live like five minutes from, from your home, but if they aren't true believers, then none of that matters. You enter into the gates of the Lord, not the gates of men. What else did Jesus say in John chapter 10? He said, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, John 10, 7. As a sheep, you go by the door of the sheep, which is Jesus Christ. The other shepherds, they could be as nice as they can be, but at the end of the day, what are they? They are thieves. And what did Jesus say about them? He says, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly, John 10, 10. You enter into Yahweh's gates through Jesus, the door of the sheep. There is only truly one gate. There is only truly one court in the language of Psalm 110. In Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, Paul would say that there is one spirit, there's one hope of your calling, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And we could generally agree on those things. But what was the first thing that Paul said? Just as there is one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one, one, one God, there is but one body. And since the, the body of Christ is the church of Christ, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23... It logically concludes that there is but one church. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.15, If I'm delayed, I write to you that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Notice, one house of God, one church of the living God, one pillar, one, one ground of truth. Jesus said upon the fact that he was the Christ, the son of the living God, he would build his singular church, Matthew 16.18. But we know that there are all sorts of, of churches, all sorts of religious organizations in the world. So, so, so in, in what way is there one church? There is only one church that is approved by God. Well, how do you identify that church? You, you observe if they come to worship God or if they come to worship self. By if they are submitting to their own wills or to the will of God, if they're heeding scripture alone or not, if they find God's word to be their final authority, not giving any real uh, heed to personal opinions, not saying, well, I know God said this, but I really think that. The churches of Christ salute you, Romans 16, 16. And remember that we do what we do not only because of what God has revealed through his word. And recognize, we recognize that in order to be pleasing to God, in order to worship him in spirit and truth, we enter into his courts and his, his gates. Look at the final verse in verse 5. It says, For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, 
and his truth endures to all generations. When a sentence starts with for or, or therefore, what does that mean? It means that, that all the previous clauses are, are motivated by what precedes the for or, or the therefore. So what does that mean? It means we make a joyful shout to the Lord. We serve him with gladness. We come before his presence with singing. Uh, we know that Yahweh is God. We know that he has created us uh, and not we ourselves. We recognize that, that he is the sheep of our, uh, we are the sheep of his pasture. We enter into his courts, uh, his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. We are thankful to him. We bless him. And why do we do all this? For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. The goodness and the mercy of God is a motivator. It's a motivator to worship him in spirit and truth, John 4, 23 and 24. It's a motivator to magnify and exalt his name together, Psalm 34, 3. It's a motivator to, to render unto Yahweh the glory that is due to his name and worship him in the, in the, in the, the beauty of holiness, Psalm 29, verse 1. His truth is also a motivator. Notice that his truth endures to all generations. The psalmist wasn't just thinking about himself. He wasn't just thinking about his generation. But he was thinking about the future, all generations. Which means that his truth currently endures in these generations. How do we find his truth? Is it this this secret mystical thing that, that he's hiding from us? That's not what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30. He said that God's commandments are not too mysterious. They're not too far off. They're not in heaven that someone has to ascend and go get it for us. They're not beyond the sea that someone has to go get it for us. But he says the word is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Deuteronomy 30, 14. He said in Deuteronomy 29, 29 that there are some things that are secret that belong to the Lord our God. But, but those things which are revealed to us, we have to us and in our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. How do we find this truth? Well, what did Jesus say about this truth in John 17, 17? He said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And all we have to do to observe uh, his truth that, that endures to all generations is just to crack open his word. And, and what can we do with it once we have it? A better question might be, what can it do with us once we have it? Well, it can help us to abstain from sin, Psalm 119, verse 11. It's able to strengthen us, Psalm 119, 28. It's able to give us life, Psalm 119, 50. It's able to make us wise, Psalm 119, 98. And relating this back to worship, it shows us how to appropriately, how to correctly worship the God who has revealed all of this to us. Whenever we assemble to worship God, what we're doing is we are offering to him the things that that he likes, the things that he enjoys. Well, what does God like? Well, what does he enjoy? He likes whenever we sing and make melody in our hearts to him. He likes whenever we rely on him in prayer. He he likes whenever we observe his word. He likes whenever we give back to the the work of the church. And he, he likes whenever we observe the death of his son. But how could we know any of these things if we didn't have these things revealed to us, for us and our children forever, that we may do all the things in this law. Good friends, I am once again grateful for all of our presences here this morning. I hope the words of this psalmist, have, these inspired words of God, have helped us to know more about our worship and how our worship is beneficial to us and to God. The invitation is going to be offered not too long from now. But just like God revealed to us what he wants from from our worship, he has also revealed to us what he wants for us, what he requires from us to be saved. 
that, that we hear his word and respond with belief. We repent of our past sins. We confess that sweet name of Jesus Christ. And we are baptized for the remission of sins. That, that, that we obey the, the gospel or the good news that, that he has given us. The gospel is built on the fact that Jesus died for our sins. That he was buried and that he was resurrected and that he now reigns. Have you submitted your own stubborn will to him and submitted to the will of God this morning? Have you recognized him as being Lord already? Do you, as a Christian, have a load that your family needs to bear this morning? If you have any need, please come now as we stand and as we sing.